Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be continuing our story of Mahatma Gandhi, the famous political leader who helped to shape the modern world with his tireless efforts to create the independent state of India. Now, last week we learned about Gandhi's upbringing, his education. We also learned that I couldn't consistently pronounce his name one way or the other. Um, And we also heard about the time that he spent in South Africa combating racial injustice and how he grew from being someone who was painfully shy and conflict averse to an unflinchingly strong political leader who stood up to the British Empire. Now, go, you know, go back. I always say this on a part two episode. Go back, have a listen to the other episode if you haven't already. Although I do have to say with this two-parter more than any other one that we've done before, this episode, part two, does stand on its own reasonably well. If you're just interested in Gandhi's role in the Indian, in the Indian independence movement, um, this episode's got you sorted. But if you want to go back and learn a bit more about the bloke, his upbringing, um, what he did before returning to fight for Indian independence in 1915, it's worth going back and having a listening to uh, the, the stuff that he got up to in, in South Africa and Britain and, and his, uh, his childhood in India. But the short version is this, a quick recap for those of you who need a, a bit of a refresher. After growing up in India, Gandhi was educated as a lawyer in Britain before getting work in South Africa, and there he was appalled by how terribly Indians were treated. Uh, wasn't quite so concerned with how native Africans were treated, but um, he began his campaign on the behalf of Indians in South Africa, as of course they were all British subjects. Um, and Gandhi's religious upbringing was instrumental in uh, the way that he waged this campaign and the campaigns after it, um, uh, all under this political philosophy he had of nonviolence, a philosophy that would guide his activism in, and, and campaigning throughout his entire life. Now, he was met with some successes in South Africa, although they weren't particularly lasting. But when we last left Gandhi last week, he had just been asked to return to India um, by nationalists there to aid the fight for independence. And that's what he did. Today, we're going to be talking about all about what happened after he headed home. We're talking about his fight for independence uh, for many, many years as he attempted to uh, mobilize and unify and support the Indian population as they stood up to the British Empire. And of course, ultimately, how Indian independence uh, was achieved and some of the problems that came along once it was. Uh, So strap yourselves in. It's a wild ride today. We've got a lot to get across. So let's get to the second half of Gandhi's story. Uh, Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1915, of course. That's where we finished up last week. And we're picking up the story from the point at which Gandhi left South Africa, headed back to India via Britain. He went and uh, had a brief uh, brief visit to, to London before he returned to India. Um, And I mentioned last week how he did this because he'd agreed to return to India and aid the independence movement. Although I have to say he made a bit of a slow start on campaigning for Indian independence once he was back in in his homeland. Um, You probably, based on what we talked about last week, you probably have a clear picture that that Gandhi was, broadly speaking, kind of supportive of the British and the British Empire. He considered himself British, generally wasn't a leading proponent of Indian independence or Swaraj as it's uh, often referred to as. 
Now, this would change, um, of course, but, but not for a while. When he returned to India in 1915, he's 45 years old, briefest London, as I say, uh, Indian independ- independence wasn't really at the forefront of his mind, and, and for a good reason. I mean, the First World War was instead. It's raging on, and Gandhi is back to his old tricks uh, with getting Indians to help out the British war effort. Initially, he did the same thing that he'd done in, uh, in South Africa and, and mobilised ambulance corps once again. But later on in the war, if you'll believe it, Gandhi actually began to encourage his followers to enlist to fight in combat roles. And this stands out as remarkably inconsistent for someone who is world famous for his dedication to peace and his abhorrence of violence. But it is true, he did do this. He did encourage recruitment for combat roles for the British. But there is a thought that this was a piece of political pragmatism from Gandhi because He may have supported the British war effort in this way as a sign of good faith because the British had begun to make overtures to the Indian people about self-government once the First World War came to an end. However, despite the war, he did still engage in activism for the the disenfranchised, the downtrodden, for for many oppressed poor Indian uh, peasants and farmers throughout the nation, uh, such as in 1917 when he aided Indian peasants in a dispute with the British landowners uh, over the price of crops, and then again in 1918 when floods hit a region outside of Bombay, today's Mumbai, in in Kedah, where peasants appealed for tax relief uh, as they tried to recover from the the devastation and, and famine that was caused by the floods. The authorities refused the tax relief. Gandhi got in full swing. He went to Kedah. He invoked his philosophy of nonviolent resistance of, of Satyagraha. And people followed him into non-cooperation and, and nonviolent resistance. And for five months, the people of Kedah refused to pay taxes. They ostracized local tax collectors and determinedly followed Gandhi into nonviolent resistance and were ultimately rewarded for it when the government suspended tax collection, released the prisons they'd taken as part of the campaigning and generally made the life of these poor farmers and peasants a whole lot easier than it had been once the floods hit. So another dub for Gandhi there, and things are really starting to pick up for him in the late 1910s, in 1919 specifically. I I mentioned last week um, uh, his title, Mahatma, the honorific, uh, it's really started to, to pick up. It roughly translates to great soul. There's a, a still a bit of uncertainty about how and when this title was first used. Might have been in 1916. There's some uh, some evidence to indicate that it was a poet named Rabindranath Tagore who might have been the first to use Mahatma in referring to Gandhi. But still, plenty of disagreement about that even today, and we're not 100% sure where the term originated uh, when it com- when it comes to Gandhi specifically. Uh, In any case, Gandhi kicking goals with both feet. Things are really about to take off for him. I mentioned before that the British had made promises to Indian political leaders about the prospect of Indian self-government in the wake of the First World War. Well, I I will warn you now, exalted listener, I do hope you are sitting down uh, because what happened next will shock you to your very core. So, uh, you know, just in case you're... uh, of a, of a delicate disposition, make sure you're sitting, sitting down feeling nice and calm so it doesn't surprise you too much when I tell you that the British went back on their word and instead offered limited political reforms and not independence or anything close to self-government. And at this point, enough is enough for Gandhi. He's had it up to the back teeth. And once again, just as it had done at a South African railway station when he was violently chucked out of a first-class carriage, his worldview underwent an enormous shift because he realised, he was so disillusioned with the British that he realised that Indian independence would never come through cooperation with the British authorities, but rather through resisting them. 
He gave the British plenty of chances. I mean, I'm sure you'll agree. He went so far as to compromise his principles of non-violence as he helped them to recruit people for combat roles during the war. But with the British backing down on the promises and the commitments they'd made to India in the wake of the war, Gandhi'd had enough. So this, coupled with a piece of legislation called the Rowlett Act, meant that in 1919, Gandhi began to take a much more... Um, well, look, I don't think you can say aggressive position because aggressive isn't really a word that you ever, ever associate with Gandhi outside of a game of civilization. But he certainly took a position that was more forthright and assertive. The Rowlett Act was a piece of legislation that, that allowed the authorities to mete out harsh, harsh punishment for anyone engaging in nonviolent resistance. How harsh? Well, check this out. The Rowlett Act allowed the British authorities to subject anyone involved in civil disobedience, nonviolent protest, or any other non-cooperation with what they called preventative indefinite detention, incarceration without judicial review, or any need for a trial. So they could lock you up and throw away the key before you'd even done anything. An absolute travesty, what a disgraceful injustice, and Gandhi refused to accept this, rightly so, especially coupled as it was with the broken promises about Indian self-government in the wake of the war. Let me tell you, he did not muck about this time in resisting what the British were up to. He contacted the Viceroy of India, the British head honcho, and he told them if the Rowlett Act passed that he would call for the biggest campaign of non-violent resistance that anyone had ever seen. He would call Indians everywhere to engage in peaceful civil disobedience in protest of these new laws. And he didn't stop there either. Gandhi also sought to secure cooperation between Hindu and Muslim Indians, as Indian society was strongly divided along uh, along religious lines and Religious violence was reasonably and increasingly common. So Gandhi, he believed that Hindus and Muslims would have to work together in in resisting British rule. And so he offered his support as a Hindu to Muslim movements within India, which I have to say, it caused a fair bit of controversy. But it gained him more Muslim followers than, I mean, to replace the, the Hindu followers that he might have lost. And his tolerant approach to religious differences, again, a product of his upbringing with his mother, united many Hindus and Muslims who had previously been in conflict. And this, of course, only grew the ranks of those who were ready to participate in Gandhi's threatened campaigns of Satyagraha as Muslims who were pleased with Gandhi supporting their political movements as well. They began to cooperate with him too. Now, look, it didn't last. In 1922, waves of religious violence broke out again. But back in 1919, with the ultimate passage of the Rowlett Act, Gandhi, with an unprecedented number of followers ready to, to follow his lead, he followed through on the threat that he'd made to the Viceroy. And he called for mass civil disobedience, mass non-violent resistance, and mass peaceful protest to British rule in India. And, in, and, and people followed him in doing this. Some followed him, tragically, to their deaths. In March 1919, after the act had been made law, crowds assembled throughout India to peacefully protest these draconian measures that, it, that, that the Rowlett Act contained. And the British responded by shooting a bunch of protesters in Delhi. And you can imagine just how well things went from there. Despite Gandhi remaining steadfast in calling for peaceful and non-violent protests, riots erupted. He did his best to calm things down and quell the violence and lead his followers back towards peace. And on the 6th of April, uh, Gandhi used a Hindu festival to address crowds of followers and remind them not to resort to violence, instead to remain peaceful, boycott British businesses, 
burn British-made clothing that they owned and ignore any violence from the opposing side and not meet it with retaliation. And more and more people joined these peaceful protests. They swarmed to Gandhi's side and Gandhi decided to make his way to the city of Delhi to lead protests there. The British warned him if he travelled to Delhi, he would be arrested, but Gandhi did so anyway. He wasn't scared and he was promptly arrested, just as the British had said, when he arrived on the 9th of April. And you won't be surprised to learn that this led to riots erupting once again and the British responded in the same way that they had the first time. They shot people. And some of the people they shot weren't even rioting. On the 13th of April 1919, the Jallianwala Bagh massacre took place, where thousands and thousands of peaceful protesters had gathered before hundreds, and perhaps even a thousand of them, were shot dead. Without even ordering the crowd to disperse, the British-led authorities fired into the crowd for 10 minutes until they ran out of ammunition, even as the protesters fled. Absolutely disgusting. The British have really gotten away with being the bad guys in so much of recent history as they perpetrated atrocities like this. And then to top it all off, after a government inquiry back in Britain into what had happened at this massacre, they forgave themselves for it. Those who had ordered it got off scot-free after openly admitting what they had done in front of a tribunal. They were let go and nothing happened to them. But naturally, the massacre only enraged Indian nationalists even further, and many more took to rioting. Gandhi maintained his position of non-violence, and he condemned those who responded to the British violence with, with more violence of their own. And he went on a hunger strike, in fact, to, to try to calm them down. This was a, a, a favourite political weapon of his. He demanded that his compatriots abandon violence, or he would starve himself to death. And it seemed to have worked as things calmed down a little bit on the rioting and violence front. But people were unhappier than ever with the British. You can't blame them for it. And Gandhi realised this and he sought to lead the Indian people out of this this hatred and anger that they were feeling and and guide this energy into peaceful and non-violent resistance. And as a result, I mean, his response, in addition to the, the atrocities committed by the British... It ended up resulting in a lot of Indian moderates coming over to Gandhi's side. Before long, the independence movement had grown larger than ever before, as more and more people who had been unsure or perhaps even supportive of British rule realised that they were backing the wrong horse. And as we move now into the 1920s, Gandhi called, called for a mass boycott of British goods and for Indian government employees to resign, for people to ignore British-run governmental institutions such as, for instance, the court system. And the reason behind this was that mass boycotts of, of, of British products would hurt the British economically, while ignoring the British government would hurt them politically. And it's around this time in the early 1920s that Gandhi began to wear the clothing with which he's most commonly associated, that simple white loincloth and robe. And this was related to the boycotts. He called people to abandon British-made goods, including clothing, and so began to wear the clothes commonly worn by India's, by India's rural poor. And he spun this cloth himself. There are photos of him sitting and, and making his clothes for himself, just as he was telling other people to do. And as he encouraged people to live their life without reliance on, on British products or British authority, it's very clear to see that this was a bloke who didn't just talk the talk, he very much walked the walk. In 1921, he was elected the, the leader of the nascent political party, the Indian National Congress. 
and with hordes of supporters behind him, he continued to agitate for political reform through nonviolent cooperation and this platform that had been given to him by this political party. Indians, young and old, and rich and poor, and Hindu and Muslim, they joined the non-cooperation movement, and the boycotts and the protests, they escalated under Gandhi's steadfast leadership as a seasoned and effective political campaigner. So effective, in fact, that the British ended up just arresting him. In 1922, he was imprisoned and sentenced to six years behind bars for sedition. And unfortunately, the loss of its leader took a huge amount of momentum away from the non-cooperation movement and the Indian independence movement more broadly. The Indian National Congress split into factions, Hindus and Muslims stopped cooperating, and generally speaking, the wind just came out of the sails there. But then, in 1924, just two years into his sentence, Gandhi was released and, well, look, he didn't pick up right where he'd left off. So much had sort of changed and fallen apart, but he was still as determined as ever in seeking Indian independence. But he took a slower approach this time with reduced support and a lack of his former momentum. But ultimately, in 1928, he once again petitioned the British government for some form of Indian self-rule, suggesting that it be made into a self-governing dominion under the British crown, just as places like Canada and Australia were. And you can imagine how that went. The British took their time in thinking about the proposal and then just refused. And Gandhi stepped up his campaign of non-violent civil disobedience as a result, because clearly the British just weren't going to play ball. He led the celebrations of a symbolic Indian Independence Day on the 26th of January 1930. And then in March, he began a very famous campaign known as the Salt March or the Salt Satyagraha. In March and April, Gandhi and a growing group of protesters walked from the city of Ahmedabad to the village of Dandi, which was a distance of almost almost 400 kilometres, so quite a trek. And their stated aim was to go to Dandi and make salt, of all things, which you might find a little puzzling. But uh, let me tell you, it was a very, very deliberate political protest because the British had held a monopoly on the production and sale of salt in India since the days of the British East India Company, which obviously enriched British traders while impoverishing Indian peasants. That was the way that the British liked to draw things up. So Gandhi made it very clear that he was going to challenge and openly break the British salt laws, which was an act of brazen and unapologetic civil disobedience. And he was going to demonstrate that he and other Indians weren't going to continue to subject themselves to unfair laws and taxes. And as he made his way south, he addressed crowds and spoke in front of thousands of people about Swaraj and independence and his intentions to defy the salt tax, which is just what he did. With an enormous crowd surrounding him, he reached Dandy with all his followers and he made salt by evaporation in defiance of the law. And inspired by this, people all throughout India began to do the same as widespread civil disobedience began to once again define the political climate of India. The wind was back in Gandhi's sails, and millions of people began to openly defy the salt laws, making and selling salt regardless of the law. But that wasn't all. The boycotts began again. People refused to pay taxes. Protests were widespread. And now you're probably waiting for the part where the British responded by shooting a bunch of protesters in cold blood. And I'm sorry to say that that did indeed happen before very long at all. The Kisakwani Bazaar massacre saw around 250 peaceful protesters shot dead, although this time, at least, 
those responsible from the officers who ordered the killings all the way to the soldiers who actually fired the guns, they faced heavy consequences this time around. Some of them were actually locked up for life. Another absolutely disgraceful and senseless loss of life, but at least some of the people involved had to face some sort of justice for it. Anyway, with the non-cooperation movement back in full swing, Gandhi decided to keep the Salt Satyagraha going and planned a march on the salt works in Darasana, a little further south. However, as he very thoughtfully informed the British authorities of his plans before setting off, they sent 30 armed constables to Dandy and arrested him, and held him without trial. His followers, however, weren't going to be put off so easily. They marched on Darasana, they arrived at the salt works there, and they found it surrounded by British-led police. And as the protesters approached, the police descended on them, beating them black and blue with heavy sticks, breaking bones and fracturing skulls. However, the protesters, they were ardent supporters of Gandhi and his philosophy of Satyagraha, and they didn't even attempt to defend themselves from the attack, much less retaliate. And over 300 of the protesters were injured, some of them quite badly, bad enough that two of them died but not a single one of them resisted the violence that was perpetrated in accordance with Gandhi's philosophy of non-violent resistance. More broadly around the country, over 60,000 people had been taken prisoner and locked up as the protests continued. The movement was stronger and more determined than ever. And the culmination of the Salt March and the widespread civil disobedience that it inspired, along with the horrific violence suffered by the protesters, The combination of this was that Gandhi, now more than ever, was entrenched as a hero of the Indian people. He's still locked up, don't forget, but his leadership had inspired people to resist the bullying and the violence of the British authorities. And and, and all the stuff that happened really didn't reflect well on the British. They were killing and, and beating up and locking up peaceful protesters everywhere. Protesters that weren't offering them violence of any kind. Protesters that were unresisting in the face of British savagery. And the end result was a round of negotiations between Gandhi and the British, although Gandhi ended up deeply, deeply disappointed by the negotiation conferences that were held in London. He managed to secure the release of the the tens of thousands of Indian political prisoners in exchange for a suspension of the non-cooperation movement, but the British still refused point blank to discuss Indian independence in any real terms. Gandhi travelled to London to attempt to talk through these issues, but the the British weren't budging. They weren't about to grant India any kind of self-rule. Gandhi made a rather high-profile enemy during this process as he campaigned for Indian independence and self-rule. He he got himself on the wrong side of the prominent conservative British politician, Winston Churchill. Now, what you probably know about Winston Churchill will generally cast him in a very positive light, but let me tell you this. He He might not have been the hero you think he was, to be honest. Perhaps we can discuss that in another episode. In the 1930s, a long time before he became the British Prime Minister uh, during the war, he set himself up as a principal opponent of Gandhi's. He described Gandhi as a Hindu Mussolini, saying that he was a dictator who preyed upon the Indian people and attempted to start a race war for his own purposes. And this charged rhetoric from Churchill really didn't do him any favours. It actually backfired a little bit as it ended up with Gandhi enjoying a bit more sympathy throughout Europe. But all the same, the negotiation conferences that he went to in London in the early 30s, they largely came to nothing when it came to Indian independence. There were some minor electoral reforms and some other small political changes, but India was, was held, on, held, held onto very firmly 
by the British as what was essentially, as I've said, a colony. Still, Gandhi took the opportunity to visit some old friends in London. He reconnected with the London Vegetarian Society that we talked about last week. And characteristically, he stayed in extremely humble lodgings in London's working class East End, rather than the fancy hotel that had been organised for him as part of the conference. And uh, while the conference wasn't the success that he had been hoping, certainly there were some reforms that were made in an effort to expand voting rights and the franchise to some sections of Indian society that hadn't enjoyed it before. But it it wasn't drawn up all that well. And after returning to India, Gandhi, who is now in his early 60s, let's not forget, was so disillusioned with the British behaviour when it came to these, uh, these negotiations that he once again called his followers to Satyagraha and so, once again, the civil disobedience began. And, once again, Gandhi was arrested for it. He was locked up, but he continued his protest. He continued his resistance, even from behind bars, as he undertook a hunger strike as a political weapon to protest these reforms that the British had instituted uh, as part of the negotiations. He did that from his very cell. Under the Indian caste system, the so-called untouchables, the lowest caste, they were going to face further discrimination under British plans to segregate them into their own electorates. Now, Gandhi was a lifelong opponent of the caste system, and he strongly rejected the British reforms. So his hunger strike was quite effective in moderating these reforms when a compromise was met, which expanded the electorate for the lower castes. And after his release, Gandhi began to withdraw a little bit from politics for a couple of different reasons. He resigned from his political party um, and he took a bit of a back seat because the call to Satyagraha this time had not been as effective as former campaigns had been, particularly with him being locked up. And on top of that, many within the Indian National Congress actually accepted the reforms that were put on the table by the British as part of these negotiations. And Gandhi didn't want to, want to have anything, anything to do with them at all. And he was worried that he would be, as a member and you know, as one of the leaders of the International Congress, he would be co-opted. His image and his, his fame and his position would be co-opted as a sign of support for these reforms, when in truth, he didn't support them whatsoever. And on top of that, there were some broader problems that, that Gandhi was having with the direction that the International Congress was taking uh, in terms of their... Uh, apparent adherence to his his uh, philosophy of nonviolence. It did seem to Gandhi that his political party was using these principles that he had helped to instill within it for political purposes. They were using them symbolically. They weren't actually guiding the party in a proper or meaningful way. Instead, the principles of nonviolence and, and, and what have you were just political tools that were being rather, you know, rather pragmatically utilised by the party without actually really meaning it all that much. So Gandhi withdrew from mainstream political life for a time and and travelled to regional India. He attempted to encourage education and self-sufficient economic activity amongst the rural poor. He wanted to lift up the, the, the impoverished and the downtrodden throughout India. Now, look, he didn't pull himself out of politics altogether. He continued to support the struggle for Indian independence wherever he could. But rather than widespread political action, Gandhi instead focused on helping the downtrodden directly. However, as he entered his 70s, Gandhi once again took centre stage in Indian politics with the outbreak 
of the Second World War. You will remember that he was very active in recruitment for the British war efforts in the past, for both the Indian Ambulance Corps in South Africa, for support staff during the First World War, and ultimately combat roles during that war as well. But, my my, how things have changed by the time we get to 1939. Because not only does Gandhi not want to help the British war effort, he actively and strongly opposed any Indian involvement in the war whatsoever. And for very bloody good reason indeed. Now, Gandhi, not a fan of fascism, of course, right? Obviously not a big fan of what's going on in some parts of Europe under Hitler and Mussolini, and he very, very, he was very, very quick to condemn them. But he didn't believe that India should involve itself in the fight against European fascism because the British are out there claiming that they're fighting for freedom and democracy and all the rest of it when India itself enjoyed very little of either despite being, in name, a part of the British Empire. So why should Indians go and fight for the freedom of Britain when India itself wasn't free? Many people listened to Gandhi and his arguments, but all the same, still, about two and a half million Indians still signed up to fight. All the same, Gandhi knew he knew to strike while the iron was hot, and his lifetime of political campaigning for the Indian people, it wasn't about to come to an end just yet. And so in 1942, in the midst of the Second World War, he launched another campaign of nonviolent civil disobedience, which has, come, which has come to be known to history as the Quit India campaign, based off of a speech that he gave in launching the movement. And this time around, let me tell you, Gandhi urged his followers to, re- to resist like never before, with complete non-cooperation with the British. Without offering any violence of any kind, He called on Indians everywhere to completely reject the British, their authority, their institutions, their products, everything, and descend into what he called ordered anarchy. He said that Indians should be ready to refuse to cooperate, to resist and to protest and to even die if the British came with their usual violent approach for the sake of India and its people. Gandhi did have some challenging views, I think, on just how far oppressed people should go in attempting to non-violently resist their oppressors. And certainly some of the stuff that he wrote about people who were subjected to horrific and brutal oppression around this time is it it just it doesn't come off well because he seemed to uh, advise people to invite suffering and invite mistreatment and welcome violence to them in order to further their political aims and causes and i don't know if i can follow him all the way with the stuff that he was saying about how far nonviolent resistance should go but certainly you can't deny that people were inspired by it i mean he had led wave after wave of political disobedience but this time in the 40s It was like nothing that had ever been seen before. People throughout India answered his call and civil disobedience was rife. And the British, of course, responded with characteristic brutality. They stamped down on Gandhi, his allies, his followers, and anyone who was out protesting or resisting. I mean, don't forget, at this point, Churchill is the British Prime Minister. And as we talked about before, he's not a fan of Gandhi at all. The British arrested over 100,000 people during the Quit India movement, and they killed countless protesters as, as they were shot unresistingly by the police at, at the behest of Gandhi. 
And he himself, he was arrested. He was cut off from his followers along with many of his political allies. Although I have to say this prompted an even stronger response from his followers because in spite of Gandhi's strict adherence to nonviolence, his followers burnt down government buildings and destroyed railway stations and, and, and cut down telegraph wires and generally just caused utter mayhem for the British. But all the same, Gandhi remained behind bars for two years, during which time, sadly, his wife passed away in 1944 at the age of 74. But even from prison, he continued to inspire those agitating for Indian independence. And despite being cut off from his followers, they continued their efforts to destabilise and resist British rule. Gandhi was finally released from prison after two years in May 1944 as his health was failing and he needed surgery and the British didn't want him to die behind bars in case this sparked another round of furious resistance. But after his release and treatment, Gandhi seemed to recover quite well and didn't stop in his fight for an independent India, which now at this point, by the time we sort of are getting towards the, uh, the end of the Second World War, actually seemed more likely than ever. So much so, in fact, that Gandhi started to meet with other Indian political leaders to, to discuss what an independent India would look like, how, how independence would be handled specifically when it came to religious differences. Because Gandhi was a strong advocate of a single, united nation of Indians, irrespective of religion, while others wanted the British colony carved up based on religious differences. It was a fight, I'm sorry to say, that Gandhi would ultimately lose. But as the war dragged on towards its end and as Indian independence became more likely by the day, he still did all he could to argue for a united, pan-religious India. In 1945, Churchill lost the election and therefore the prime ministership and the new Labour government was uh, a little more open to negotiating with Gandhi and other political leaders on the topic of Indian independence. And as the Second World War drew to a close, the British finally, at long, long last, agreed that India's future was to be, after all, an independent one. And once this admission had been made, Gandhi called for his followers to end their civil disobedience and their non-cooperation. And the battle was, for all intents and purposes, won. All that remained was to work out what an independent India would actually look like. All the unceasing, tireless work that Gandhi had done over the last 30 years in attempting to secure Indian independence, it had finally come to fruition. And India was now ready to take its first steps as an independent nation. But still, there was a level of uncertainty as to exactly what those steps should be. As I said, Gandhi had been negotiating with other leaders for a unified India, irrespective of religious differences. But, as I say... It wasn't to be. Religious conflict and strife between Hindus and Muslims had only grown and grown uh, during this period, and Muslim leaders were calling their followers to come out and protest for their separation from Hindu India. And this resulted in countless needless deaths as Hindus and Muslims fought each other and died. And the British authorities just stood back and let it happen. The police, in many cases, just didn't get involved. But, but Gandhi did. He travelled to the places where the violence was at its worst and he appealed for peace. But it didn't do much. And after years of negotiations, the final result was that India was to be granted its independence, but also to be divided and partitioned along religious lines. Muslim majority areas in the northeast and the northwest were to be split from the rest of, uh, of Hindu majority India, resulting in the creation of, of Hindu India and Muslim Pakistan, which in turn was 
split again when the northeastern exclave seceded from Pakistan after a civil war to create Bangladesh in 1971. But Gandhi considered his inability to secure an all-encompassing pan-religious unified independent India as his greatest failure, especially as the partition of India was not a peaceful process at all. Hundreds of thousands were killed as millions of both Hindu and Muslim refugees fled their homelands to cross the border into a part of the former colony where they were now welcome based on their religion. And Gandhi, of course, he called for peace and again went on another hunger strike to attempt to get people to calm down and just stop killing each other. He travelled tirelessly through the areas ravaged by religious violence. And while in some instances he may have helped to defuse and limit the violence in, in, in other areas, unfortunately, he wasn't received so warmly. And the reason for that is there were people on both sides, Hindus and Muslims, who regarded Gandhi as an enemy. There were Hindus who thought so because he was seen to have attempted to appease Muslims with many of the proposals that he put forward. And there were Muslims who considered him an enemy because, I mean, he was a Hindu. What more reason do you need? It's a great shame that Gandhi's lifetime of work in securing not just an independent India, but also a peaceful one, was so badly tarnished by the actions of violent religious partisans. But right through to the very end of his life, his creed of non-violence did inspire others to seek more peaceful outcomes. In 1947, his hunger strike quelled a riot in Calcutta. While in 1948, he oversaw a truce between fighting Hindus and Muslims by essentially shaming them into nonviolence. And it's very, very sad that Gandhi's lifetime of work didn't result in him being able to sit back and reflect positively on what he had achieved. Because despite him viewing himself as having failed as India was divided up, Gandhi was nonetheless, a monumentally important part of, of, of India and Pakistan finally gaining independence from British rule. The religious violence that followed the partition was terrible, but it was hardly his fault, as much as he may have considered himself responsible for it. But saddest of all, however, is how Gandhi's life ended in 1948, when he was 78 years old. Rather than enjoy a peaceful death to match his peaceful life, on the 30th of January 1948, Gandhi was gunned down by an extremist Hindu nationalist, Nathuram Godse, who shot him in the chest and killed him. Godse believed that Gandhi had betrayed Hindus everywhere by appeasing Muslims and further believed him to be personally responsible for the religious violence that followed independence. A senseless, and tragic and violent end to the life of a man who campaigned unceasingly for nonviolence, who lived a simple and humble life in the service of his country and its people. However, his death was not made meaningless. It prompted widespread reflection on the political and religious situation in India and Pakistan, and the Indian government used the opportunity to disempower Hindu nationalists, which grew its popular support and helped to legitimise it as the government of a newly independent nation. Having said that, unfortunately, the government did twist and manipulate Gandhi's image for its own purposes, and politicians used his memory as a political tool as they sought their own ends. But all the same, the loss of Gandhi was felt deeply throughout India 
and his funeral procession was eight kilometres long as people turned out in their millions to pay respects to their fallen leader. Millions of Indians around the world mourned the loss of the man that they affectionately referred to as Bapu, the father of their nation. And in many ways, Gandhi embodied three of the most important social movements of the 20th century. The movements against racism, against violence, and against colonialism. He wasn't a perfect person. No one is. But he was a principled and determined and uncompromising and incredibly gifted leader. He spent his entire life attempting to secure peace and freedom and happiness for his people. And for someone who started out in life too shy to read out arguments about why someone shouldn't be kicked out of a vegetarian club, he ended up standing up to the might of the British Empire by himself and inspired a nation to grasp its destiny and independence. His adherence to non-violence at all costs ultimately helped to secure Indian independence, although even today, India, Pakistan and Bangladesh and indeed the rest of the world still haven't joined Gandhi in his quest for an end to human conflict. In some of his writings, as I mentioned, his call for non-violence is excessive, I think it's fair to say, arguing that you should submit yourself to death at the hands of violent oppressors without resistance. However, his role in forging the modern states of India, Pakistan and Bangladesh as independent, self-governing nations it can't be overlooked. And in addition to this, he has gone on to inspire other famous non-violent civil disobedience movements, most notably the US Civil Rights Movement, led by Martin Luther King Jr. And today, in an age of increased political polarisation and partisan violence, Gandhi's ultimate message is one that the world would do well to remember. He wrote, Victory attained by violence is tantamount to a defeat, for it is momentary. And he also wrote, I object to violence because when it appears to do good, the good is only temporary. The evil it does is permanent. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the end of the story of Mahatma Gandhi. And it is, it's, it's always great to get to know a very famous and well-known political and historical leader like Gandhi a little bit better with, with episodes like this. So I do hope you've got something out of the last two episodes and I hope you've enjoyed them. Of course, we're going to close the show with all the boring housekeeping stuff. We'll get through it nice and quick so we can get out of here. Um, Halfhousehistory.net, uh, contact form, merch, Patreon. Thank you to all the people who have signed up recently for uh, for the Patreon. It's great to have new people on board. And thank you to all the old existing, pa- existing patrons who have been around for yonks. It's wonderful to have you along as well. Um, Patreon listeners would have been able to listen to part one and two without delay as both episodes were put up at the same time. So if you want to uh, enjoy early access to episodes as well, patreon.com slash half history and uh, an enormous thank you to all the exalted patrons around the world. Thank you so much. And thank you as well to the people spreading the show, spreading the, the word about the show, getting the uh, getting news out there about half Hour history and telling their friends and their, and their enemies and the people they feel largely ambivalent about, about this dumb podcast. It certainly is very, very much appreciated. All right. That's enough for this week. We'll be back next week with more Half Our Sister. Until then, leaving with a question posed on Reddit. Of course, this one comes to us from Tango Whiskey 33 who asks, Did Gandhi go on a hunger strike because the British wouldn't let him put salt in his food? <laughs>